Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. We're going to uh, receive our offering right now. As we do that, um, I'm going to be playing a video for you from a show that uh, many of you may be familiar with. It's a a show called The Chosen. And you are going to see a conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a teacher and leader and a spiritual person, but felt that something was missing in his understanding of God and, and also knew that Jesus had some answers that he was looking for. And so as the Bible tells us in this video captures, they come together one night for a meeting and, and to discuss this and questions are raised and information is brought out and Jesus explains some things that we'll also talk about in the conversation today, okay? So you can engage that in a minute. Uh, First of all, as as we receive the offering, if if that is something that you understand these spiritual matters and you're just kind of re-upping today and refreshing, this is a moment you can engage as part of your worship. If this is still a big question in, in terms of what the gospel is in your mind and heart, then let this moment pass you by because if it's not mixed with that understanding, then it's just an action and God isn't interested in mere actions. He wants relationship and intent of the heart. So, Let it pass you by, and you can focus on this moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We thank you for all that he is, and we thank you for the answers that he brings. And so, Lord, as we engage and prepare and open our hearts to this message, we pray that the gospel message would not only flood our souls, but that these tithes and offerings received would enable this church, just one of your local, a local body of your church around the world, that you would um, enable us to share that gospel message and the hope that it carries to this world around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus talks with Nicodemus. Eastern slums. Hmm. Many wandering preachers have succeeded in gathering crowds with their rhetoric and fiery tone. I've heard a few of them over the years myself. So you know the type. Mm-hmm. But I have never heard anyone tell a paralytic to get up and walk, much less it actually happened. I believe your words. I just fear you may not have a chance to speak many more of them before you are silenced. I have come to do more than speak words, Nicodemus. More miracles? Yes. But even more than that. Do you remember when the children of Israel complained against God and against Moses in the wilderness of Paran? Yes. They wanted to return to Egypt and they cursed the manna that God sent them. And then? They were bitten by serpents... And they were dying. But? But God made a way for them to be healed. Moses lifted the bronze serpent in the desert. And people only needed to look at it. 
so will the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our people are not dying from snake bites. They're dying from taxation and oppression. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But I did not come to deliver the people from Rome. Then from what? From sin. From spiritual death. God loves the world in this way. That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The world in this way. Would you stand with me, please, while we read the scripture? This is the gospel in Colossians chapter 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And we will stop there because we'll continue that on next week. You may be seated. Thank you. And Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and our minds concerning your gospel. In Jesus' name. So we've been in the series that we've entitled, This is the Gospel. And this has been our key scripture that tells us the whole of the gospel. We've been looking at that through these last few weeks. Gospel, again, means good news. It's God's good news, his answer to the deepest questions of life. And we all have these deep questions that we struggle with. Where did I come from? What's my purpose? How should I live? Where am I going? These are deep questions that we're all trying to answer. And God says, I have an answer for you. And it's ultimately good news. And that's what we see in here. And it began, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, with the understanding that he is Lord. We have to first get that this Jesus, the very one who sat in front of Nicodemus there, was none other than God in the flesh. He came to his people and appeared so we could know him personally. And he is the Lord of all. He is the creator. We are the creation. He's independent. We are dependent. And it must begin there, understanding the good news, the gospel. Because if you don't understand who God is, you don't understand who you are. If you understand who God is, the more you understand who God is, the more you understand who you are. And then it moves into understanding, as we looked at last week, that he is first. That means first in rank, supreme above everything. He should be first in our lives. And if he's not first in our lives, then nothing else fits in its proper order. It's just like if you take the sun and you wrench it out of the solar system, the earth spins off into chaos and all the planets with it. It needs to be at the center and first in rank above all the others. So God needs to be first in rank. Without that, we don't understand our desires. We don't understand our goals. We don't understand right and wrong. We, we might think we do, but it's all spinning into chaos if we don't understand who's first and the one who's behind it all. And then this week, of course, leads into another element that we're going to learn, a key element of the gospel. And when we talk about this element, we need to add another question. Because in addition to those four questions that pretty much everybody asks, there's another question I think that many people ask. They look around at the world and they say, what's the problem with the world? What's the problem with the world? Have you ever asked that question? When we look at a world that 
has beauty in it. We can see the potential of something and we feel somewhere in our souls it should be more than it is somehow. And yet there's something in the way along with this beauty, there's this ugliness that comes in. Have you seen anything like that lately? We've heard about something that happened just recently in our country that tells us the, the ugliness that can occur in this world. And we know something is wrong. What is the answer to that question? What's the resolution to the, to the problem? How do we deal with the bad news of life? God says, I've got good news. I've got good news for you. This is the gospel. But I'll tell you, have you ever heard the phrase, I've got some bad news and I've got some good news? Which, I'm not going to ask you which one you want first because in this case, we've got to start with the bad news because if you don't understand the bad news, you won't understand the good news. So if you're really seeking the answers in life, that's where we have to start. Colossians 1 told us that in the gospel. It said this in verses 19 through 20. We had seen there, we just saw it a few minutes ago, and here's a little bit more of a snapshot of it. God was pleased through him, that's Jesus, that's the Son, the one who's Lord of all, God in the flesh. God was pleased through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. When you reconcile something, it's, it's two things that have been split apart, that belong together but are no longer together, and you bring them back together into harmony. That's what it means to reconcile. And we're told here that he reconciled to God all things. The things that were somehow separate from him, he reconciled those, whether it's things in earth or things in heaven. Why did he need to reconcile those things? Because sin, as we heard Jesus tell Nicodemus, sin, spiritual death is the problem. And when it came into the picture, it fractured the relationship between heaven and earth. It fractured the relationship between the creator and his creation. It was severed and shattered in that moment. We see this happen in the world of humanity in the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, God places them in a place, a place of special grace, a place of relationship with him called Eden, a place where they would dwell personally with God, that he would have relationship with them. And it's in that place we see that God gives them one command, one command from his mouth to keep. And it says this, he says, I only require you abstain from eating of the fruit of one tree that he placed there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he tells them, beware, he says to that first man and woman, the day you eat the fruit of this tree, you will certainly die. Now think about this. God placed them there to have relationship with him. He required nothing in terms of where they would go, what they would do. He, he gave them free reign and grace, but he put one command in place and asked them to trust him and not break that command. You see, it was never about the fruit. It was about the command because the creator is the source. He is the one who's independent. He is the one who has life, and he speaks to those who are dependent, who need him for life, and he tells them, this is the one command that you must keep. If you break it, the moment you fracture it, you're going to be fractured off from life. You're going to be fractured off from independent, the one who's independent, and your dependence is going to spin away. The sun is going to disappear, and earth is going to spin off into chaos. So don't do it. Beware. He gave them one command to follow. We all know how that went because we live it every day. 
In fact, we see, it's very interesting, in that book of Genesis, the man and woman are looking at that fruit of that one tree they were not supposed to pick from, and we see that there are three things that kind of grab their attention. One, that they saw that that fruit was good for food. You might call that the lust of the flesh, desires that are contrary to, the, to, to what God would want for his creation. Then they also saw that that fruit was pleasing to the eye. You might call that the lust of the eyes. When our eyes fixate on something that is not of God, that he knows is no good for us, that will fracture that relationship, but we desire it anyway. And then we also see that it says that they thought that fruit was, was desirable to make them wise. You might call that the pride of life, believing that us in our pride, that we can be wiser than God, that we actually don't need him as the source of wisdom. We can be wise on our own. It's ironic that you see many, many centuries later when Jesus himself enters into a desert to be tempted by the very same one who tempted them. His name is Satan. He's a fallen angel. He himself has sin in his being and has fallen away from his source and his creator and relationship with them. And he tempted them and he tried to tempt Jesus the same way. And it's ironic that when he does that, he goes at Jesus with the exact same things. He goes after him and says, turn this stone to bread, he tells him one day when Jesus was hungry in the desert. That's called food looks good, lust of the flesh. And that doesn't work. And he goes, well, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world. Just bow down to me. Serve me instead of God your father, and I'll give them all to you, pleasing to the eye and the power of it. And when that doesn't work, he says, you know what? Here, you're on a high mountain. You're at the point of the temple here. Just jump off. And God will save you. I know his word says something somewhere about don't tempt him, but don't worry about that. You're smarter than God. You'll figure this out. Just jump off. He'll take, your father will take care of the rest. Of course, none of those work with Jesus, but they work with us. And to this day, we still struggle with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and our pride as we, as we squabble and bicker and, and pursue things that we know bring a, a fracturing of relationship with the God who tells us not to pursue these things. And so Eden, in that moment, when they fell to that, that relationship with God was shattered. And the relationship between God and heaven and earth was broken. It's exactly why the poet Robert Frost, thinking of the Garden of Eden, wrote the words when he said, Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, her early leaf a flower, but only so an hour. So leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief so dawn goes down today nothing gold can stay the gold and preciousness of that pure place with God turned to gray and began to fade and so God wasn't first anymore with respect to man and woman and the earth began to spin away from the sun the question is of course if we're going to understand the gospel do we believe that do we believe we're in a fractured world? Do we believe we're in a world where God is Lord and is supposed to be first, but rarely is given his proper place? Or do we excuse the issues away, especially for ourselves? Do we pretend as though that isn't the case? It begins with trusting whether or not we can believe our lying eyes. And so that was the beginning of the downfall and it continues on, of course. The gospel message tells us that bad news continued when we understand the real results of that because that relationship that we had with God changed its state. In fact, you might say that mankind was made and man and woman were made to have a friendship with God. 
God walked in the garden with them. He, want, he always wants to be with his people. The creator has an intimate love for his creation. That's his default state. And so he wants to be friends. But in the moment when that fractured from him, the state and the nature of that relationship changed. And we're told that in this Colossians scripture. It says here that when we were once alienated from God, and we were enemies in your, in your minds because of your evil behavior. Now keep in mind, the writer here is writing to people who have come to understand the message of the gospel. But we're looking at this, maybe you haven't understood this message, or maybe it's been a while since you really took a good look at it. And so from that standpoint, if, you were, if this was written to you, you would see that he's saying, in this natural state today, we are alienated from God. Each and every one of us carries on the same sin and produces the same pattern that we saw in that first man and woman. And so we're enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. Our natural state is to be at war with God. Our natural state is to, is to take whatever is good from him and whatever is right and actually try to find a way to do the opposite, to prove that we are wiser than God, to prove that other things are better for the eyes and better for the flesh and more pleasing than a relationship with our creator. That's our natural state, to look for that. Now, I know sometimes that's a little bit difficult to grasp onto, but the scripture tells us very clearly that, that when we talk about sin, we're not talking about simply a matter of a lack of knowledge. Like if I gain more knowledge, then I'll come to understand God better and will be good. Or the idea of maybe um, what is natural to our desires. One person out there has written that sin is whenever you pursue something that's not natural for you. So if it's not natural for you and you pursue it, then that's sin. But if it's natural for you and it feels natural to you, then it's fine. That is not sin. We just saw it in the scripture there. We're enemies with God because of our evil behavior. We break his command. In fact, 1 John chapter 3 says that in fact, anyone who sins breaks God's law. You see, in fact, sin is lawlessness. God lays down the law. We break the law. It's, think of it this way. I've got a vase over here right above this stone pillar. So if I pick this vase up and I decide to hold this vase up about this high above the stone pillar and I drop it on the stone pillar, I'm wondering what's going to happen. So let's, what do you say on the count of three? So one, two, three. Anybody? anybody? Yeah, some people are calling for it. Other people are going, no, no, two and a half. Okay, and I'm going to, on the count of three, just put it right back gently down here because it's a nice vase, okay? We want to put flowers in it at some point. But you know what would happen. I drop that, it's going to shatter all over that pillar. Why? Because there's a law. It's called the law of gravity. And if I drop this vase, no matter how much the vase wants to break the law of gravity, it's not going to work. The law of gravity is going to break it. You break the laws of God, you, you, you don't break God, the laws break you. No matter how much you try to redefine them, misdirect them, excuse them away, just rail at them and get angry, it doesn't matter. He's the one who makes the laws. It's his creation. We, we break them, we, sh we get shattered in, in, the, in the end of it all. And of course, we're told how badly this fracture goes. Jeremiah 17 tells us regarding our hearts. It says this, The heart is the most deceitful thing there is and desperately wicked. No one can really know how bad it is. Well, that's pretty heavy. Now, I think sometimes when we think of sin, we think of it in terms of degrees, 
So we think, look, I, I, I know what just happened. You referenced it a little earlier. I know something horrible happened down in Texas, but I, I didn't do that. I don't do anything that bad. And so, you know, it's a matter of degrees, isn't it? Well, I, I think it makes me think of a story uh, that I heard. I don't know if it's true or not. You can decide. But there was a man who died and showed up at the gates of heaven, and Jesus was there. Uh, true? Maybe. But he shows up, and Jesus is sitting there, and behind Jesus is a bunch of clocks on the wall. And the guy says, what are those clocks? And Jesus says, well, we put a clock up for every single person, and it tracks the number of lies they tell. Every time they tell a lie, the minute hand advances one minute. He says, for example, look over there. You'll see Honest Abe Lincoln. He wasn't too bad of a guy, but he wasn't perfect. You can tell there that the minute hand advanced to the number five, five times. Over there, you'll see Mother Teresa. A little bit better. Okay, not perfect, a little bit better. And so you can see there that the minute hand advanced two times. Well, the guy's looking around. He sees no clock with his name on. He says, Jesus, I'm feeling pretty good. There's no clock here for me. Jesus says, that's right. Your clock's in my office. I'm using it as a ceiling fan. (laughs) You might think a sin is degrees, and maybe you've told more lies than the next person. But that's really not the issue. There's a deeper issue of the heart, a condition that we all share. And and I want to test this out for a minute, so I want to go back to this. Rob Elementary School in Uvedi, Texas. It's a tragic, horrific situation. And and nobody could, could argue that it wasn't completely dark and evil and what was done there and the choice that was made there. For those of you who aren't caught up to speed recently, Around 18, 19 children and a few adults were tragically killed there by a person who just entered in and decided to do this. It's tragic. It's evil. It's horrible. It's an example of sin in this world. And so we should call it that, and we should treat it that way. But it's obviously evil. The difference is when something isn't so obvious. And so my question I might ask you is this. When you see something like that, and you see that individual, is your first reaction to say, I hope that individual suffers. I just hope they spend an eternity in hell. Or maybe it's not that situation. Maybe it's, you know, the people you disagree with, you know, politically or otherwise. Ah, those people, they, they need to go down. When you entertain those thoughts in your heart, ask yourself a question. Does that reflect and align with the will and heart of God, or does it not? Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11 says this, As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. God wants even the most wicked. He hopes they would turn and live. We want to see them go down. Are our hearts in alignment with the heart of God? Or in fact, are they twisted and bent towards an alignment of sin? Again, we might look at it and go, but I haven't been as bad as some of those things you're talking about. I don't think I've even, I don't think I've lied 20,000 times. I don't produce any ceiling fans for Jesus. I might have done a few more than five, but not 20,000 or more. But James chapter 2 tells us this. It says, for the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. So does it matter if you broke it one time or 20,000 or that law, but not this law? From God's standpoint, does it really matter when the creator sees that sin fractures his creation off from him? That's all he knows? And in fact, when you think about it, sin is not just a product of what we do, but it's also the one who sinned against. Because I can guarantee you, if you steal something from a thief, they might just laugh about it and steal it back when you're not looking. 
But if you steal something from a judge who, is, who does nothing like that wrong and upholds the letter of the law, he's going to put you away for the maximum penalty because you have offended the one who... You've, your sin is an offense against the character and nature of the one sinned against. Well, how much is an offense to God who is perfectly and infinitely just and holy? One little lie, ten little lies, what? It fractures his creation off from him. That is the bad news. That's the problem. And Romans 6 tells us what happens because of the problem. When people sin, they earn what sin pays. Death. Spiritual death, Jesus said. I came for the problem of sin. You notice he said, I, I really love this statement in the video. Nicodemus said, hey, we're, we don't have a problem here with, with, you know, with this and that. We, we, we have a problem with oppression and taxation. From the, He says, hey, I'm sorry to tell you this, but I didn't come to deal with your problem with Rome. I didn't come to deal with your political squabbles. I didn't come to deal with your other squabbles. I didn't come to deal with those things because those things are just symptoms of the problem. The real problem that causes you fighting and warring and hating and killing each other over all that is sin. It's spiritual death. You're fractured off from the source of spiritual life. That's the problem. That's the bad news. But there's good news because Romans 6 goes on to say, but God gives his people a free gift, eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Anyone who would choose Jesus Christ our Lord would be given this free gift and be called his people, his children, not his enemies, but his friends. That's what he offers freely to each of us. And so our gospel scripture, again in Colossians 1, says it this way goes on to tell us again, once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. It's as if Jesus could walk over to that vase now shattered all over this pillar and miraculously, I mean, imagine if, I can't even imagine what this would take to do this, but I try to picture if I could do that, walk over and there's this vase shattered all over this pillar in pieces and I could group and bunch those pieces up and put them down in front of you here and just touch those pieces and they were to come back together and produce this vase. They're now, that vase is now reconciled. All the pieces that fell apart that were meant to be together are back together and whole again. He reconciled us through his death. Somehow, some way, he did this. Now, when Nicodemus asked him in the video, Jesus pointed out something he would have been familiar with in their history. He mentioned a time when the people were rebelling against God in, in, in the desert wilderness, and snakes came, serpents came, and were biting the people, and they were getting sick and dying. And then Moses lifted up a serpent on a pole, and whenever they looked at it and just simply had faith that God would heal them, they were made well. And Jesus said, that's what I'm going to do. Because we need to understand, first of all, how, how deep the bite is of this, of this serpent, the one that Jesus pointed to that for a reason, because that illustration echoed back the Garden of Eden and the serpent there, Satan that took that form, and how dangerous and deadly his bite is. I read a story recently that um, there, there was a man who saw a rattlesnake, diamondback rattlesnake, thought he was going to get hurt, so he decapitated it, and that was the, the head's laying there, uh, severed from the body. He picked the head up, and the severed body bit him. Severed head bit him and got so sick, he had to take like 24 anti-venom shots and spent like weeks in the hospital fighting for his life. The head was severed, but it still had the power to kill. 
There's a reason why in Genesis chapter 3, I'll leave it to you to go look at it, the very first gospel message is given when God foretells this, and he says there's going to be one coming one day, a descendant from this woman. He's going to come one day. They're going to call him Savior for a reason because he's going to show up on the scene, and this one here, this serpent, the devil, is going to bruise his heel. He's going to harm him. He's going to hurt him badly, but he is going to crush the serpent's head. He's going to crush his head. You see, a snake is still dangerous while that has it, but if you crush the head then the danger is gone. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus came to crush the head of the serpent, to crush sin for good. And that's why he said in the same way that that serpent was lifted up on a pole, that bronze serpent they all could look to, now I am going to be lifted up. And when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to me who will look to me in faith that I will crush the head of Satan. I will crush the head of sin. That is what he did on that cross. Now many people have explained this in different ways. I'll just give you a few right now, really quick. But I can tell you one that doesn't work about the idea of Jesus' death on that cross. Some people would call it the example of Christ. They would say, he gave us an example to follow. Be sacrificial, be loving, and then you'll start doing better and you'll walk better with God. So his death on the cross was an example for us. No, I beg to differ, humbly. Okay, We saw it already. We were alienated from God and we're enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. Just, just a good example to follow isn't going to make us better. You can't make dead people live by just acting a little better. They're too dead. It's spiritual death. So that doesn't work. But I can tell you what he did do on that cross. He ransomed us. We were captive to the devil. We were captive to sin, and he paid the ransom to liberate us. Jesus says, I come to give my life as a ransom for many. He substituted in our place. We deserve to be on that cross because we disobeyed God. He always obeyed God. And yet he took our place and substituted and paid the debt so we could be free. Imagine somebody walks into a courtroom and you owe a billion dollars. You could never pay it back. And uh, I don't know if it's Elon Musk or who, but they whip out their checkbook and they say, here, here's a check. You're free. Go. Well, there is no person on this earth with enough to pay back the debt of sin against an infinite God except one. One. And he paid that on the cross in full. He said on the cross, it is finished. It is paid in full. And the final view I'd mentioned that people look at it is, is Christ as victor. And I love this view because Jesus overcomes our sin and the evil forces in the world that hold us down, that declare us guilty, that give us no hope and no future. The very forces, including our own flesh and all those lusts in it that say, no matter where I came from, I don't really even know what my purpose is. I don't know how to live and I have no idea where I'm going. He turns that all on his head and declares victory. I know you. I love you. You have purpose. I'll tell you how to live and I'll take you where I'm going. The victorious Christ. That's who Jesus is. Jesus took a world of beauty and ugliness and he brought it together in a way no one else could. The words say it this way, I consider the things every day, everywhere, and I am perplexed by this. Maybe you are too. The inseparableness of a world that exists in beauty and ugliness. The grace of a lion inspires our awe, and yet it lies down tame in its rest, but quiet is quelled as the wildebeest is felled by beauty and ugliness. A fire provides its life-giving warmth and mesmerizes as the flames lick, but forests and homes and hunger are consumed by beauty and ugliness. Or consider the tongue, and from it the flow of waters both salty and sweet. One word is beauty, the next word is ugly, and all from the same flowing stream. 
I consider these things every day, everywhere, and I am perplexed by this. A world that breathes life, a world that will kill, a beauty and ugliness. O clever cross, for in you alone is solved this great perplexity. When a savior hung there for everyone, everywhere, his death turned ugliness into beauty. That's the cross. Do we believe it? Do we believe it? It would be enough for the good news to end there. But it didn't. I'm just going to wrap up with this point. Because in Colossians 1.18, we're told that the resurrection of Christ seals the deal for the good. He is the firstborn from among the dead. One person said it this way. I loved it. He said, he paid our debt. And when he raised from the dead, we cheered because it meant the check cleared. <laughs> he paid the debt. He cleared the check. His payment was good. And it began to set free all of creation. Romans 8 tells us this. says, everything God made, it became something that couldn't fulfill its purpose, but with a hope in view that creation would be made free from ruin, that everything God made would have the same freedom and glory that belong to God's children. He wanted to bring about this new freedom. That's the resurrection. The resurrection is, in the, in the Christian faith, we need to understand this, it's not just a set of rules. It's not just a living a certain way. It's not just reading the Bible enough. Those things are all good. We'll talk about more of that next week. But it's more than that. Jesus' resurrection is that we will step over death like a doorstep. We'll enter into life if we're in Christ through faith. The Christianity is a vision full of spiritual life and holiness. The resurrection of Jesus means he'll save a soul and body from destruction. The resurrection of Jesus, one person said, is not merely an event within the world as it is, but it is the foundational event of the world as it has begun to be. That is the Christian faith. That's Jesus Christ. That's the one who is Lord and first, and that he died and rose. That's the gospel. And Colossians 1 says that this results in him making us holy, making us right with God again, making us pure. Colossians 1, verses 21 through 22. He's reconciled us to present us holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Without blemish. I want you to just think on that word for a minute. Without blemish. Because they're going to come out here in a moment and, and we're going to play a song and we're going to memorialize somebody after I have a question for you. But I want you to capture this idea without blemish. Jesus Christ has secured for us through the cross, through the resurrection, life forever with God in perfected, glorified spirits and bodies. I can't wrap my head around that. But what's amazing to me, if the worship team can come out at this time, what's amazing to me is that while we stand there in those perfected bodies, he will stand there in his marked body. He will be blemished for eternity so that you and I will be unblemished and perfect. That's our king. 
That's the one who's first. That's the one who's Lord, that he would be willing to do that. What does that say to you? Because what it says to me is that I can't even understand or begin to understand why I'd be worthy of that. That why I would be worthy that the one who created me, who I have proven time and again as my clock spins round and round like a ceiling fan, why I do not deserve to be with him, why my sin is as ugly as any sin, and why he would take that sin into marks on his body forever so that I could stand with him without those marks. Have you ever heard the gospel? Because that's what he offers you freely. And so my question is this. Have you ever received, truly received the gospel? Because I realize you could be sitting in church for many, many years and have never received it. So this is an opportunity. Romans chapter 10 says simply this. This is all you need to do. If you will declare that Jesus is Lord, if you'll believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he did this for you, you will be saved. You will be a friend of God. The problem will be answered. You will have life. So real quick in these final moments, just put your head down because I've got a question for you. With no one looking, this is between you and God. If you find that maybe today you're saying, I've never heard this before, but I'm hearing it now. Maybe you've been here around churches for years. Maybe it's your first time walking through the doors. But if you hear it and you know that God is speaking to you and you simply want to declare that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead for you and receive his free gift, then all you need to do to do that right now is just put your hand up before God and put it down. Nobody's looking. It's between you and God. Thank you. Between you and God. Just got one more minute. Just one more moment. Anyone else? Okay, and there's a second question I'd ask you, along with those who responded here. Maybe you have heard this. Maybe you know you're good with God. Maybe you know the gospel is yours and God, and and you are his. But you've been losing track of what it means. It's become a little bit more about you and what you can do, and a lot less about what he did for you. And if that's you and you want to recommit to living in the simplicity of that faith in what he did and recommit that to him today, then just put your hand up before God and tell him that in your heart. Thank you. Anyone else? Recommit that to God. Okay. Father, we're going to pray for not just for those who have raised their hands, and there are a number, but God, we're going to pray and thank you in all of our hearts for the one who is Lord and the one who is first, who died and rose because he's Savior. And we willfully add that title, God, with cheer and joy in our hearts. We thank you for him. And we want to remember him in this moment for what he chose to do for us because that is the love of God for each and every one of us. And so, Lord, we thank you for it and we will commemorate it with the words of this song. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
God so loves the world in this way. Next week, we're going to wrap this up. As uh, I promised you, there'll be three weeks God and one week about us. That's next week. We're going to get into that. But meanwhile, let's go forward and live the gospel this week. Let's live in the gospel and in faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us. We are so thankful as we remember what Jesus did for us, God. May we never forget the cross. May we never forget the empty tomb and the life that you brought in answer to the deepest questions of life. So, Lord, may we go forward in that. And even as we remember you, we do say a prayer for those families, God, in Texas right now who are grieving. Be their hope and their comfort. And again, God, we thank you for the hope beyond this world of sin. In you, Jesus, in your resurrection. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.